Good morning, uh, Bible Chapel. It's a, it's a delight to be with you again. Um, just a quick note, I didn't get a mic. Is it okay if I just use the pulpit mic? Can everyone hear me clearly? Okay. Uh, well, it's a delight to be with you all again. Uh, it's always a, a pleasure and a joy for Sonia and, uh, and me to, uh, to get to be with you and uh, to catch up with you and, and to worship the Lord with you. And it's especially encouraging today to get to worship with you um, now that our two children are older and, and bigger, um, more mobile and certainly more talkative. Uh, for those that um, don't know, uh, my wife Sonia uh, and I have been uh, missionary serving overseas for just about seven years now. Uh, we first served in the uh, country, the Republic of, of Turkey, and we were involved in church planting in Turkey until we were uh, forced out of the country uh, by the, the government. So we returned to the States, and then the Lord opened a door and gave us an opportunity to go to the, uh, the kingdom of Cambodia to preach the gospel, to make disciples, and uh, to give ourselves to seeing churches planted and uh, pastors trained and theologically equipped in, in Cambodia. Cambodia is a country of roughly 17 million people, and it's uh, just about 97% Buddhist. Um, Christian landscape is 1% to 1.5% um, evangelical. But, you know, even then, uh, uh, the term evangelical is, a, is just it's, it's an umbrella term. There's a lot that falls under that label. And so we praise God that a lot of good work has been done in Cambodia, and yet there's still a lot more work to be done to see more churches planted, to reach more people with the gospel, uh, but also to, um, to equip churches and pastors theologically. That's one of the things we have given ourselves to um, since we've been in Cambodia, and a desire to continue to give ourselves to um, is to resource and equip pastors and churches uh, theologically, and then also to raise up new uh, pastors from within churches. Um, On that uh, equipping theologically point, you know, one of the things that's just astounding to us is uh, throughout Cambodia, you've had, uh, what what we have seen is um, a, a handful of people will come to faith in Christ and then organize themselves, or not really organize themselves, just begin meeting regularly as a church um, in someone's home, and due to cultural reasons, typically they look and they say, well, who's going to lead us? And they say, well, who's the oldest among us? And that individual gets appointed a kind of like de facto pastor. Um, but he may have been a, a believer for six months uh, with no theological background, with no theological or biblical um, education and training. And so one of the things that we have given ourselves to and certainly want to continue to see happen is to provide good resources in the uh, language, uh, it's Kumai, uh, in the language for pastors and churches, and to, to continue to educate and, uh, and mature the, the body of Christ in Cambodia, um, biblically and theologically. And so that's a huge way you can pray for Cambodia. There's an emerging church there that needs just, um, really needs to be rooted in, in the word and um, and in theology, and so that is a way that you can pray for God's work there uh, in Cambodia. Um, we are currently stateside, um, and uh, a bit unexpectedly stateside. Um, we, 
many of you, uh, some of you perhaps uh, have heard, but um, basically we had to come back in order to um, identify a new sending church and uh, sending missions agency, uh, the church that um, formerly sent us and that I actually, I've been, um, that I was almost raised up in. I became a believer as a teenager and was spiritually birthed into this church. Um, recently experienced a, a pretty major split and is um, seemingly on the brink of even perhaps dissolving, but they're no longer in a position uh, to be able to send us overseas. And so um, my family and I had to come back in order to identify new missions agency and to work out kind of all the logistical details of our being sent overseas because we want to do that um, we want to do that faithfully we want to do that wisely we want to do that healthily uh, we want and so we're here now in the states to get all of that sorted out and so we we appreciate your prayers um, for that we ask that you would pray that the Lord would um, to lead us and guide us and give us wisdom and the decisions we have to make pertaining to that over the next few weeks and uh, in few months and um, we ask that you would pray for the Lord's continued work in Cambodia and um, among the nations um, uh, who have yet to hear the gospel, uh, who have yet to meet a believer, who have yet to gather with the saints um, and worship the Lord on the Lord's day, and who have yet to have any uh, theological instruction and training. Uh, There's so much work, so much need overseas, and so we're just praying that the Lord would... um, keep the door open and provide all the, all that's needed for us to be able to return overseas and to continue giving ourselves to meeting those needs. Um, so, yeah, I appreciate your prayers for that. Uh, today, I want to look with you at Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Today and, and this week, we're celebrating um, the Reformation um, great and uh, just wonderful day that we continue even to this day to celebrate, um, recognizing and joyfully celebrating the work that the Lord did uh, through um, through the the Reformation and recovering the the gospel and recovering the um, so many other things related to that. Um, you know, I. I want to say we we celebrate the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door, but unfortunately, um, I read an historian named Mark Knoll who kind of debunks that myth that certainly Martin Luther kind of laid out his theses for the church, but he probably didn't nail them to the door. That kind of became a myth that is a great story to tell, no doubt. It makes us really excited just imagining Martin Luther just pounding his nail into the door. Unfortunately, it's more of a better story than it is actual history, but we can kind of indulge ourselves and just imagine just how great uh, that day was and just all that God did uh, through the Reformation and recovering the biblical gospel. Now, when we celebrate the Reformation um, as Reformational Protestant Christians, we're celebrating uh, numerous things. We're celebrating the recovery um, and even just clear... um, parsing out an articulation of justification by faith, that we are made right uh, with God, made right in the sight of God, not by our own works, not by our obedience to the law, but because of Christ's work, his work on our behalf. 
because he fulfilled the law in our place and offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross, but then three days later rose again from the grave and now lives and intercedes forever as our great high priest, as the book of Hebrews says. That is the great truth that we celebrate and rejoice in its recovery. But there were other truths as well. There were other concerns that led to the Reformation. One of them was Christian liberty. One of them was vocation. This idea that it is not just the pastoral or the priestly office that is important to to God and is used by God and is a part of God's work in his world. One of the things that Luther and the other reformers wanted to recover was this idea of Christian vocation, that um, God calls all Christians to a particular task, not just the priest, not just the pastor. He calls all Christians to various tasks, to various responsibilities in this world, and it's all a part of his work in preserving this world and his creation and extending the redemption of Christ to all of creation. So justification and vocation were really important themes in the Reformation. Um, Those themes, the foundation for them, are right here in Genesis chapter 1. Here in Genesis chapter 1, we're going to look at Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, and then look at Genesis 2, 14 through the end of the chapter. We have really the foundation for all the Bible right here in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Just about any and every major theme, any and every major teaching that you could think of that um, is prominent and is important in the Bible, you're going to find them right here in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. If you want to study what the Bible has to say about kingdom, you're going to find the the foundation for it, the seeds for it right here in Genesis chapter 1. If you want to study what does the Bible have to say about covenant, it begins right here, Genesis chapter 1. If you want to find out what does the Bible have to say about vocation, it starts right here, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. And so, for us to understand then these important truths that we claim to hold to and that we cherish and that we want to proclaim to the world, justification and vocation and all these other things, we have to start right here in Genesis chapter 1 and understand what is often what's commonly called the creation mandate, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And so I want to look at that with you today, this creation mandate, uh, this task that God gave to Adam. And uh, what I want to do is really see how Genesis chapter 1 sets up the major story of Scripture um, through God's giving of the creation mandate. And it's really a tell, some have said, a tell of two Adams, a story of two Adams, the first Adam and the second Adam, as 1 Corinthians 15 uh, teaches us. So I want to look at three things about this mandate that God gives to Adam in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. And then I want to can, uh, draw applications of it for our understanding of justification. How is it that God saves us? Vocation. What is it that we should be doing as believers, as Christians in this world? And then even draw out uh, applications for missions. Uh, as, as a missionary, I, of course, have to discuss missions, and the foundation for that is right here in Genesis chapter 1. 
So Genesis 1, I want to read these verses with you and then look at three things about this mandate that God gives to Adam. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, and the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Now if you would look at Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. So here's the first thing I want to look at with you. Um, Adam's mandate. If you wanted to put this another way, you could actually say the task of the first Adam. But Adam's mandate, Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. Now, really, there are three things about this task. Um, it's kind of like a threefold task, you could say, that God gives uh, to Adam. Cultivate, or guard, cultivate, and propagate is really how you could think about this creation mandate, this original task that God gives to Adam. Guard, cultivate, and propagate. So why do I say guard? Look, first of all, if you would, at Genesis 2, verse 15. We just read it. God says to Adam, the Lord, or, um, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. To work it and to watch over it. So here's the picture that is painted for us. Uh, and I'm careful with picture as if this is some kind of merely story. This is, this is what happened uh, when God created uh, the earth and he created the first man, Adam. And here is, uh, here's what we're told about that. God creates all the earth. He even cultivates the earth, Genesis chapter 1. And then in a certain region... Um, he plants a garden. We see this in Genesis 2, verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. So God creates all the earth. He forms it. As we see in Genesis 1, it was uh, uh, formless and void. God forms it. And then in this region called Eden, God plants a garden, and then he picks Adam and he plants him into the garden. He places him in the garden. Now, uh, for the sake of time, we're not going to go into all these details, but goodness, I wish we could just sit here and just go into Genesis chapter 2 just in detail because there's so much here that's happening. One of the things that's interesting about this garden that God um, plants in Eden, and one of the things that Moses wants to make clear uh, through his recounting um, uh, 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 of God's creation and of his task given to Adam is this area that uh, Moses or that um, that God carves out this garden 
when you go through Genesis chapter 2 and you read really be, uh, from verses 8 through uh, 14, the language used to describe the garden is actually very similar to the language used to describe the temple and the, re- and, and the area that made up the temple in Israel's later history. What is it that the author wants to show you and to show me when we look at Genesis 2, verses 8 through 14? God didn't just make an earth. He didn't make just this machine that just kind of runs on its own and that's just kind of neutral and secular. God creates the earth, and the earth is more like a temple than it is a machine. The picture that's given to us of, the, of, of creation when it is first established is that of a temple. If you were to look through verses 8 through 14 and compare it with the, the temple in Israel's later history, it's very much um, painting this picture of Adam was placed into a temple. And then, what's interesting then, is in verse 15, the first task, guard, the words used to describe Adam's task is to work it and to watch over it. Now, those are two verbs that are actually later used to describe the work of the priest in the temple. In Israel's history, the, the priests were placed into the temple, and the verbs used to describe their work were precisely the same, to watch it and to keep over it, to guard the temple, because it's the place of worship of the holy God. It can't be profaned. It can't be corrupted. Sin can't make its way in. And so the, what we see in Genesis chapter 2 is the task that God gives to Adam is a priestly task. God has planted Adam into a temple garden. It's the place of worship of God. It's the place where man meets God to know him and to commune with him and to worship him. And God has given the task, this priestly task to Adam to guard it, to keep it, to maintain it as, as a faithful priest over the place of, of the worship of God. And then the second thing we, uh, so I just want to say, just thinking about the kind of the, our, the way we view the world. Sometimes the term we use is worldview. The way we think about creation, the way we think about man. You realize this earth was formed as a place of worship to God. This earth was formed as a sanctuary. This earth was formed as a temple. This earth was formed with the purpose of man knowing, delighting in, and communing with God. That's why Adam was created. That's why the earth was formed. That's why you were born. You weren't born just as this neutral figure in this neutral world who, just, who was born purposeless and even to use the term secular who would then just decide, you know, do I want to worship God or not? Am I a worshiper of God or not? The reality is, as we see in Genesis chapter 2, all of the earth, all of creation... Every creature, you and I, were made to be worshipers of God. Now, you might deny that truth, but that reality is still there. And because you deny it, 
and you seek to suppress it, what you do is you turn to other things instead of the true God. We are all worshipers. We all worship something. It's just a matter of what is it that we worship. You and I, as we see in Genesis 2, verses 8 through 15, we were made to know God. We were made to worship and commune with God. Which means if you are not giving yourself to worship of the one true God, you will be giving yourself to something else because you were made to worship. Have you, or maybe someone you know, struggled with addictions of some kind? Have you or someone you've known struggled with just, um, we could say, idolatrous and even dangerous infatuation over a person or, or a relationship? Have you struggled with wanting a certain person or group of people to like you and to be fond of you and to delight in you, to accept you? The reason we have these inclinations as humans is because we were made to be worshipers of God. And if we aren't giving ourselves to worship of him, we will give ourselves to worship of something or someone else. So if you're here today and you don't give yourself to worship of God, if you don't profess belief in Christ and his gospel and you don't follow him, my question to you today is what are you worshiping? Because you're not a neutral figure. You're not a neutral human in a neutral world. You were made to know God. So what are you giving yourself in worship to? When you are on your own, no one's around, you're in a room, a quiet room, and the only sound is your own thoughts, what does your mind immediately go to? What do you think of the most? When you think that you want freedom from work, or from responsibilities, and you think, if I just had time to do this, what is that thing? What do you long to spend your money on, your hard-earned money? That's not just a hobby. That's an idol. That's a God that you've replaced the one true God with. So Adam's mandate, he was called to guard. He's a priest in God's temple garden. Then the next thing that we see about Adam's task is he was called to cultivate. We see this in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Look, if you would, um, at verse 28. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. So Adam was called to cultivate. Adam, the, this creation mandate, was the task of taking raw resources and producing culture and cultural artifacts out of them. This is a task that you and I still engage in today. What is, what is a violin? It's wood that was carved out. What's on it? A horse string. When we look at this pulpit, it's wood that was carved and formed in, into a pulpit. And we could just... Uh, we, you know, when I was, um, before I um, actually perceived that the Lord was calling me into ministry and leading me um, overseas, um, I pursued training in, in pipe welding. And I was planning to uh, give myself vocationally uh, to, just to welding, to, to pipe welding. 
And even that is a form of, of culture, of taking raw resources and, and producing something out of them. Why is it that you and I continue as, as humans? Why is it that humans all around the world continue to take any and all resources we can get our hands on, that we can get a hold of, and we produce products out of them? We make cultural artifacts out of them. It's because this is the task that God gave to us. This is how he created Adam, and this is how he created humanity, to cultivate the resources of the earth. Adam was intended to do this in the garden and to make a more elaborate, you could say, temple garden um, out of this place of worship that God had placed him into. And, you know, there are so many, I don't know about you, but I read this and I, you just start to think and speculate, what would that have been like? I mean, imagine if Adam had been given this task to cultivate the resources, the raw resources of the earth, and to, to produce cultural pieces, cultural artifacts. But he had never disobeyed God, and he had never fallen into sin, and um, mankind was never sinless. Of course, that's speculation, because God himself, he is Lord, he is all-powerful. The word we often use for that is sovereign. He's in control of all things. God's will happened. And so, but I just, I, I look at this text and I think, what if Adam had not fallen? And what if he had just continued to cultivate and this world had never fallen into sin? What kind of, what would that have been like? Uh, well, there's a sense in which it would have been different and discontinuous with life as you and I know it today. But there's also a sense in which it would have been the same. And there would have been continuity in resemblance between the two. How would it have been different? Well, there are, um, there are things we produce today that just would not have, perhaps would not, would not, not perhaps, most certainly would not have even entered into the mind of man, would not have been a necessity to make. For example, if man had continued to cultivate and create culture, but had never fallen into sin, would we have ever made guns and war tanks? What need would we, would we have had of them? There would have been no sin. There would have been no evil. Would we have made locks for doors? No. Why do we make locks for doors? Because we don't trust the people behind them. Because we know, even if we deny it, even if we say we think man is just naturally good, you and I know deep down inside man's not naturally good. Man actually has an inclination to evil within us. And that's why you lock your door at night. That's why I lock my door at night. Because I think, yeah, there are some good people out there, but I better lock my door because there might, not, there might be someone who wants to come in at night and harm myself and my family. You and I all, we, we all, we both know deep down inside, man's not just naturally good and only occasionally chooses to do evil or to do wrong. It's really our nature. But if, if, if man had not fallen, we wouldn't, have, we wouldn't have created locks. We wouldn't have produced locks. There would have been no need of them. And so there are many things that are dis discontinuous, but it also would have been the same. Uh, would we still have had buildings and cities? Yeah, we would have. Uh, would we still have built places uh, of worship? Probably. I just don't know what that would have looked like. Um, but there's a sense in which it still would have been the same because we it's creation. It's God's creation. It's the same creation he made. We're the same humans he made. Um, and so Adam was called to cultivate 
and this continues today, um, and yet very much affected by what we're going to see in Genesis chapter 3. But then the last aspect of this mandate that we see given to Adam, uh, we could say is propagate. Look, if you would, at verse 28 again. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. So there is um, the heart of this task that God gave to the first Adam, to Adam. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So here's, here is the story that's given to us. Adam, as the first man of all creation, was taken by God and put into the Garden of Eden. He was placed there as a priest to guard the temple uh, garden and to guard the worship of God. He was called to continue to cultivate that place. And then he, along with uh, the wife that God created and gave to him, was called to propagate, was called to raise up progeny who knew God just as Adam did, who were then called, just as Adam was, to raise, raise up progeny that knew God just as they did, just as Adam did. Now, what if that had happened and man had been faithful to this task and they had continued this on and on and on? This whole earth would have been filled with men and women who knew and worshipped the one true God, who had never given themselves to sin and who had never experienced the fall of humanity into sin, chaos, evil, and destruction, who had never experienced separation from God. You know, all these details are here in this text. This is why sometimes in the tradition that you and I are from, this Reformational Protestant tradition, there's this idea that's often called the covenant of works or the covenant of creation. And that is that God made a covenant with Adam and he gave him this task. And if Adam had obeyed this task in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, Adam would have been kind of, you could say, confirmed in his, his, uh, his righteousness and would have been allowed to eat from the tree, would have never fallen into sin, and therefore the earth itself and creation and creatures after Adam would have never fallen into sin. But that's not what happened. Adam wasn't faithful to this task. And that's when we look at Genesis chapter 3. And the second thing we see is Adam's fall. Adam's failure. So Genesis chapter 3, and look with me if if you would at um, verse 13. So the Lord... So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, 
yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. The man named his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. So you notice here in verse 22 um, that um, there was this, in order to block, to guard Adam and his wife from the tree of life and eat forever, uh, this, is, this is where this idea and this notion comes from that if Adam had obeyed the task, um, as a result of that, in this covenant God made with him, he would have been allowed to partake of the tree and would have never died, would have never been separated from God. But as it is, Adam and Eve fall. They disobey the mandate that God gives to them, and they are not allowed to partake of the tree of life, and they're banished from the garden. Now, uh, the problem then and this is what the rest of Genesis is going to unfold for us. To be banished from the garden is to be banished from the presence of God. You know, this is more than, you know, like you're living in a really nice house, um, but it just turns out you're not, you can't pay the bills. So you get an eviction notice, and then you're kind of banished from the nice house, and you have to go to a not-so-nice house, um, I hope I don't offend anyone with this illustration, but you might remember from the Rocky movies. Rocky has, he, they have this immaculate home. They love this home, but then Rocky loses his money, and, he, and they have to leave the home, and they go back to the old neighborhood in Philly. And uh, they're living in this just basically like dump in the Philly. It's not like that. It's not like, well, we can't, uh, we're just going to get banished from this place and uh, just go to a not-so-nice place um, the significance of this is not, oh, they got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Gar- the, Eden uh, the Garden of Eden must have been an immaculate place, a beautiful place. That certainly is true. And um, you cer- they certainly didn't want to experience getting kicked out of there. But what's more important in Genesis chapter 3 is they have just been kicked out of the presence of God. They have just been alienated and separated from God's dwelling place. And as Genesis continues to unfold, what we see is um, the, the borders, uh, if you will, the boundaries of the story goes beyond the Garden of Eden. It goes uh, out and out and out. And that is to demonstrate more that man is getting further and further and further away from God. They're drifting farther away. They're alienating and separating themselves more and more from his presence. And this happens in the rest of the entire Old Testament story and the 
entire biblical narrative shows us just how far removed from uh, God that man becomes because Adam's task um, affected not just himself, affected not just Eve, but of all creation and all humanity. You see, what we see in, this, uh, in, in the account of Adam and Eve and this mandate that God gives him is that Adam was representing not only himself, but of all creation and of all humans. In Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through the end of the chapter, what we see there is this idea of two Adams. In Romans 5, Paul teaches us that Adam was representing all creatures, all humans, and all creation as well. He was a representative. So if Adam had been obeyed and partaken of the tree of life, you and I would have received that blessing. You and I would have been born into a world that never knew sin and that never knew and experienced separation from God. We wouldn't know negatives. We would only know a world that was perfect, that all was good, as Genesis 1 teaches us, that only knew life and communion with God the Father. But Adam represented us, and so because he fell, he disobeyed the command that God gave him in Genesis chapters 1 through 2. You and I fell with him. Now, this might sound strange to you and to me, this idea that Adam represented us, and so because one man, maybe sometimes we would put it this way, well, that was Adam's mistake. What does that have to do with me? Or if that's true, why do I get punished for what Adam did? Well, it's because Adam was representing you and me in the garden. And that might sound really strange to you. You might think, well, that's just not fair. That doesn't even make sense. I've never, uh, that was so long ago. I've never even met Adam. So why do, uh, that doesn't even make sense. That doesn't seem fair. But the reality is this whole idea of people representing us and either securing blessing or cursing on our behalf, it's just a part of uh, human experience. Uh, we experience in every as- uh, facet of our lives. We always have someone representing us. We always have someone making decisions that affect us and generations after us. For example, uh, one of the things I uh, enjoy doing, um, I- I've done some and uh, continue to enjoy and would like to do again, is genealogy. Uh, I love looking into my family background. And so I started doing some, some research, found out that my family came from uh, the Souths, um, came from Cambridgeshire, England, and they owned the boat that they came on. And um, along the way, they started to make uh, their way into Ohio and Kentucky and some other areas. You know, I didn't make the decision to be born in Middletown, Ohio. Right? If I was writing my own life narrative, I probably would not have chosen the town that is known, um, known because it was written about in a book called Hillbilly Elegy. That's probably not what I would have chosen for myself. But as that is, I am from Middletown, Ohio, because some Souths, years and years and years ago, made their way to Middletown, Ohio. I didn't make that decision, but it's completely shaped my life for the rest of my life. Someone represented me, and that decision years and years and years ago has implications even to this day. 
In the same way, God set up Adam to represent you and me in the garden, and he failed. And because he failed, God pronounces a curse on all the earth. Man, woman, creation and creatures, and Satan himself, as we see in Genesis chapter 3. But God gives a promise. You see, this is the God that you and I know and love and worship. God doesn't end with cursing and judgment. He ends with promise and provision. God himself is God. He is holy. He is righteous. All that he does is just and true. And because Adam didn't obey God, God could have condemned Adam and left it. And he would have been righteous and just in doing so. But what is the picture that you and I are given of the very beginning, and in the very beginning, of the God that we know and love and worship? Genesis 3.15, I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. The very first promise of salvation. And then... In verse 20, rather verse 21, the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. Promise and provision is the picture that we are given of, the God, of, of God. He is a God of promise and provision. He promises salvation, and he provides it to his people. As the rest of the Old Testament unfolds, it begins to anticipate. That's what the whole Old Testament is about. Who is going to come and fulfill Genesis 3.15? Who will be the seed to undo what Adam has done? Who will be the seed to bring about the promise and provision of God? Who is going to be the one to fulfill Adam's task? Adam had a task that he failed and left undone. Genesis 1.26-28. And the rest of the Old Testament is anticipating one who will come and pick up and complete that task faithfully. So here's what's interesting. If you wanted to study this more on your own, this idea of the the creation mandate in verses 26 through 28, you begin to see that same task reiterated and given to numerous figures throughout the Old Testament. When you look at Genesis chapter 9, God gives the creation mandate to Noah and to his sons. Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. But what do Noah and his sons do? Do they, do they complete this task? Do they bring the promise and provision of salvation and rest to God's people? No. No, in fact, it's very tragic, the story we read about with Noah and his sons. They don't, they don't, they don't complete it. Noah becomes a type of Adam, but he fails. Then we read in Genesis chapters 12 and 15, God calls out a man named Abram, changes his name to Abraham, and guess what? This, this creation mandate, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, it's reiterated to Abraham, and it's given to Abraham. But here's what's interesting. When you look at the covenant that God makes with Abraham and this reiteration of the creation mandate, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, God doesn't give it to Abraham as a command. He gives it to Abraham as a promise. He makes an unconditional covenant with Abraham, and he says, I'm going to see to it that your seed fulfills this task. I promise you, your seed, your seed will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. When you, think, when you see God's promise to Abraham, 
your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, you need to be thinking Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And God is telling Abraham, I'm going to fulfill that through your seed, but it's not going to be dependent on you because you are a fallen, broken, wicked sinner, just like Noah, just like Adam. You're not going to do it, but I'm going to see to it that it's done through your seed. So then everyone knows, okay, it's going to come through Abraham. Who's it going to be? God raises up David. Second Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with King David. And God promises that David's descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. So now we know, okay, this promise, the seed is going to fulfill the creation mandate through David. But David doesn't do it. Moses doesn't do it. Moses is barred from entering the promised land. Who's going to do it? Well, then we get to Daniel 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, there is a promised son of man who's going to come, who's going to multiply his offspring, who is going to conquer the nations. And this promised son of man is none other than Jesus Christ himself, who comes in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew tells us he has come to provide salvation to his people. He is Emmanuel, God with us, who has come to save us from our sins. Jesus himself takes up the task of Adam. Jesus himself is led into a garden just as Adam was. He is tempted by Satan. And what does he do? He stands victorious. So the last thing to see about this mandate is Adam's victory. We see Adam's mandate in Adam's fall or Adam's failure, but the last thing we see is Adam's victory. And by Adam, I mean the second Adam, Jesus, who took up the task of Adam on our behalf who took up the creation mandate on our behalf. He went to the garden just as Adam did. And he did this representing you and me just as the first Adam did. And guess what? He, though tempted by Satan, just as Adam and Eve were in the first garden, he comes out victorious. He doesn't fall into sin. He doesn't fall to the temptation of the devil, to the wicked one, to the deceitful one in the garden. He banishes him from the garden and he comes out victorious. At the end of his life, he should have been blessed, as Adam would have been. But what happens at the end of Jesus' life? He goes to the cross. He goes to the cross like he sinned. He goes to the cross as if he disobeyed God as the first Adam did. But this was all a part of God's plan and design. Because Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so 1 Corinthians 15 then tells us that Jesus is the second and the last Adam. He completed Adam's task in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. But he did this representing you and me. He did this on our behalf. He fulfilled God's law. He fulfilled the mandate in Genesis 1 and 2. And then he offered his life as a spotless sacrifice to provide Salvation to you and to me. He brings about the promise and the provision of salvation. Adam and Eve were clothed with skins from animals. You and I are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And so today, celebrating the Reformation, let's look to the scripture and see this grand story of these two Adams, the first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam failed and did not complete the task. So the second Adam came 
born as a man, born as a virgin, born under the law, to fulfill the law on your behalf and on my behalf, to secure salvation for us. And this is why we are justified. This is why and how we are made right in the sight of God, through faith in the work of Jesus and not our own. Let us cherish this truth. Let us hold to this truth and celebrate this truth even this week as you gather for your Reformation party. Look to the second Adam who fulfilled this task on your behalf and on my behalf. And so when you study the Bible and you look to the creation mandate, do not first and foremost think this is a task that I have to do as a believer. You think first and foremost this is something that Jesus completed on my behalf to provide and secure my salvation. The next thing this shows then, just in application, is vocation. This was another central concern in the Reformation. Justification makes vocation meaningful. Justification, Jesus fulfilling this task in Genesis 1, 26-28, enables you and me now to fulfill the God-given task that God has given to us. We're still under the creation mandate. But you and I now live under these two mandates, the creation mandate and the, the gospel mandate in Matthew 28, 18 through the end of the chapter, to go into all the earth and to preach the gospel to every creature. And so, friends, don't think that if you are not in full-time ministry that your work, your work is worthless and meaningless and unused by God. God has given you a very specific task, and he's called you to his part and his work in this world of preserving this world and extending his redemption through the preaching of the gospel. And so know that your, your work is very important and is used of God. And so how is it that you go to work and do your work as a Christian? You do it faithfully. You do it rightly. You do it honorably. You do it diligently. And know that your work is not any less important than my work as a missionary. My work as a missionary is no more important or significant in the sight of God than your work as a welder or a plumber or a school educator. And then lastly, this has implication for mission. When you look at Matthew 28, you see the connection to the creation mandate. Jesus, as the second Adam, the son of man, Lord of all creation, commissions his followers now to go into all the earth and to fill it with worshipers of God through the preaching of the gospel. And so let us pray that God would send more people to the nations to fill this earth with worshipers of the one true God as God always intended through preaching the gospel. So with that, I'm going to pray for us and and we'll be closed.